0: There's an old adage, quality, schedule, features, pick two. Yeah. Okay? Engineers typically pick quality and schedule. Not always, but typically. Product people typically pick schedule and features. So there's this natural tension mm-hmm. between quality, schedule, features, pick two. Of course, when I asked Jeff Reader this question, what do you think he said?
1: Welcome to the Software Misadventures Podcast. We are your hosts, Ronak and Guan. As engineers, we are interested in not just the technologies, but the people and the stories behind them. So on this show, we try to scratch our own edge by sitting down with engineers, founders, and investors to chat about their path, lessons they've learned, and of course, the misadventures along the way.
2: Hi everyone, happy new year, and it's Guan here. What you're about to hear is an episode that we published almost three years ago. And the reason we're sharing it with y'all again is that this podcast has gone through a lot of changes over the years. And for all the new listeners, we wanted to make sure that y'all didn't miss a favorite conversation of ours with David Henke. David is an amazing storyteller and has many amazing stories to tell from his time running engineering and operations at LinkedIn, Yahoo, and Silicon Graphics. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation.
1: David, it's such an honor to have you with us today. Welcome to the show.
0: My pleasure. Good to be here.
1: So while preparing for this conversation, uh, I was reading about you. And when I went on Google and searched David Henke, uh, one of the first hits I got was an image of you pointing at a screen with some metrics and graphs. Uh, you were pointing at the screen, but you were also looking at the camera. And what appeared is that you were screaming at the camera. So I, I thought we would at- start with asking you about the story behind that picture.
0: Okay, well, you're referring to a poster that said, this is my freaking
1: yes, site. Yes. <laughs>
0: and, uh, you can substitute freaking for whatever word you would like, but I can assure you it's nastier than freaking. By the way, just in, so you know, in, in India, they made us change it to It's My Precious Site because oh, wow. they were offended by freaking. Oh. Uh, what happened was site up, which is something that's important, especially to a company the size of Yahoo with so many properties and so many important pages, was not going well. And they wanted to bring attention to the site. And at the time, I was running production operations, which is really the data centers, uh, the network's the uh, 28 POPs, and the uh, 35 data centers, and also the 1 million computers. Mm. But the sites were actually run by different groups, like Messenger and Search and Mail and so forth. And things mm-hmm. weren't going well, and they wanted me to bring attention to the site. So I pointed to something that matters to me greatly, which is sponsored search, which was my first job at Yahoo, which is how we made half of our money. And if you know anything about calculus, the area under the curve is money. Uh, uh, right and and we don't want to lose money and we were losing money uh because we had some sponsored search problems and Mm -hmm. i was trying to make everybody or remind everybody it's your freaking site and site up does matter because that's the business we are in
1: yeah well site up does matter and it is something that we are going to dig a lot into uh but Remind me, was this poster also kind of stuck on walls in various buildings of the company? This
0: poster, unfortunately, I don't really, uh, I'm not a very photogenic person, and I'm not a very good speaker, uh, but I will tell you, my ugly mug was in every floor of every building (laughs) at Yahoo, and it was in every data center. And people who did not know me would go, is that you? Man, you are one ugly son of a gun. (laughs)
1: I, I would I would disagree that you're not a good speaker. I, I think you're a great speaker, <laughs> as we are seeing here today. Um,
0: <laughs> well, thank you for that. I appreciate it.
1: So you've had an amazing career in tech, and you've had a huge impact on companies like LinkedIn and Yahoo, AltaVista, Silicon Graphics. Uh, one thing that while I was researching, I learned that you retired three times throughout your career. Uh Can you tell us more about these times?
0: I can. I'm trying to think how to do this nicely. So I left Silicon Graphics after eight years. Mm. And Silicon Graphics was arguably the greatest company I ever worked for. Um, Jeff Wiener sometimes gets mad at me because LinkedIn really (laughs) is a great company. But Silicon Graphics, uh, just the fact that I was there for eight years, I thought we had the best engineers on the planet. And they left to go to companies like Google, like Netscape, um, and, but, but when I, when I left after eight years, it was cause we had just bought Cray computers and that was becoming the largest player in a dying market because Google had shown us that the large number of small computers was better than this mammoth supercomputer. So I just quit and I had enough money. I always made money. I was good at that. And I just said, I'm done. And I sat on the sidelines for a while and a friend of mine who I had worked with at Silicon Graphics called me up and he said, I'm at an Elon Musk company. It's his first company. It's called Zip2. Oh, right. We did door-to-door directions, and we did uh, newspaper sites for the New York Times and the Mercury, San Jose Mercury. And he wanted me to run operations, and I had never run operations before. I'd always been an engineer. So I said, what the heck? I'm sitting on my butt. Might as well go get another job. So I went to work for this little company called Zip2, Elon Musk's first company. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We sold it for $310 million which got uh, him into the business, but also I made some dough. We sold it to Compaq, which at the time owned Alta Vista. Okay. And uh, that's how I got into Alta Vista. And uh, and then after four years of that, I retired. That's retirement one. Mm -hmm. I retired because my children were the age of um, high schoolers, Mm -hmm. freshmen and sophomore in high school. And it's the one time your kids do not want to be with you. (laughs) you. Young people won't know this yet, but trust me, they don't want to be with you. But I wanted to be with them, so I retired for three and a half years, mm-hmm. and I did not work. I I took uh, karate, I took Spanish, I took real estate courses, but I also spent a lot of time with my kids. And then I got another call, and this was from Yahoo, and that's when Yahoo asked me to come back into and, uh, and help them with their sponsored search uh, down in over uh, which was Overture, a company they had bought, and that was responsible for half their dough. And it was a hell of a thing, and we can talk about that later. But I came down and did that for two years, and then I did production operations for Yahoo for two years. And at that point, Yahoo capitulated on search and search monetization, which I was very disappointed with. And so I retired again. And then within a few months, uh, somebody I had worked with at Yahoo, a guy named Jeff Wiener, who's the CEO of of LinkedIn and now is uh, chairman of the board of LinkedIn. Yeah. He called me and said, I, got, I want you to hear about this company. And I said, you know what, Jeff, I, I, I think I'm not going to be working anymore. Yahoo kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And he brought me in, and he, I talked to Reed Hoffman. I talked to all the engineers. Uh, but the most important guy I talked to was the CFO. He said, <laughs> let me explain this, this uh, business that we have based on this data that we have, this incredible set of data, and what we're trying to do. And it just blew me away. So I thought, what the heck, I might as well try it one more time. And that was a, arguably probably the best business decision I ever made. And uh, I, I think, uh, looking back, LinkedIn is the best company I've ever worked for.
1: Oh, we are extremely grateful that you chose to work at LinkedIn. I think uh, Austin and I here have a job probably because of you, because you you, you built in that site of culture at LinkedIn when you came in. Um, and b- before we go there, you mentioned that you were always on the engineering side, and operations is not something that you had at least led before. So... When you went to Silicon Graphics, or sorry, uh, Zip2 at the time, you know, did you know you would enjoy this, or were you passionate about operations engineering, or did you just want to take a chance?
0: Uh, I actually didn't know if I would enjoy it, and in fact, I did not enjoy it when I, I don't like it as many of you when things do not work. And I will tell you, things did not work at Zip2. Uh, it was one of those Microsoft shops, it didn't scale. Um, I did, I was such, I was a good enough programmer and encoder where I actually reviewed changes before they got on the site. Because at that point, I was like, you're not, this isn't getting onto my site. I remember Elon Musk himself trying to write code to get on the site. Not a good engineer. A very great entrepreneur, but not a good programmer. <laughs> um, and, and I, and I will say, I, I didn't know a lot about data centers. I didn't know a lot about, uh, networks and networking. Uh, I didn't know a lot about the scale and the issues. The beauty of AltaVista, when we took that over, was that was a large problem. It was a large search engine before Google, but they used um, the big alpha chip deck um, machines, and it, that wouldn't scale because of cost. And so you learn a lot real fast. And I realized that engineering and operations really need to work very closely together if you're going to scale on the Internet. And that's a lesson a lot of little companies need to learn, including LinkedIn, when I joined them.
1: Wow. Yeah. Now, it's pretty amazing that you learn all of that on the job. Uh, also, you mentioned that for the first, uh, a lot of years of your career, you were a programmer, uh, but then what? you f- went from the IC track to the management track. Uh, how did that happen?
0: Well, that's a long story. So I, I was a founder in my uh, two startups and I was the principal programmer. The first startup, I wrote 73% of the code Oh wow! and it was all C programming back then if you're uh, interested in that. When I got to Silicon Graphics, I thought I was a real hotshot programmer. And then after the app, I would say out of the 200 programmers that were there, I would rank myself 197. And it was a little humbling. And I thought, well, I can look at this one of two ways. I can feel bad about that, or I can feel really good that I can learn from these other 196 really smart people that are way better programmers than I am. And that's what I chose to do. Um, I work for the, uh, tools group and I, and also compilers. So I was, I was involved with the C++ compiler. I was the one who brought Java, uh, over from Sun. What a piece of shit Java was at that time. a uh, hundred times slower than C. Um, I brought, we brought Purify into the company, Pure Software. Um, but at the time I was still an individual contributor and we were supposed to get to a 64-bit computing model. We were the first ones to do it in the major computer makers. And everything worked except the tools and the compilers. (laughs) And our group was choking on the tools. I wasn't part of that exercise. So they came to me as an individual contributor, and they said, we need you to work on this problem. I said, well, what if I don't want to work on it? And they said, then you're fired. (laughs) And that's the way Silicon Graphics was. So they made me manage a group for the first time in my life of people, and I put them into two shifts. Working round the clock to get our debuggers and our performance analysis tools and our C++ front ends and all these s- systems to work with a 64-bit computing. You would think this would be an easy problem coming from 32 bits to 64 bits. It's a really hard problem. And uh, we worked, we worked two shifts round the clock, uh, day and night for three months, created a minimum viable product. And all of a sudden, Silicon Graphics could ship their 64-bit computers. And I realized, as an individual contributor, I can do this amount of work. But I just got these gentlemen and these ladies to work really hard on this problem, and we were heroes. And Silicon Graphics was really good about taking care of their heroes. They sent me to Hawaii for five uh, for five days in a five-star hotel with presents on my desk every day, plus bonuses, of course.
1: That sounds um, amazing.
0: <laughs> a very good company to work for that way. But anyway, that's when I became a manager. And it decided that I could do more with that. Now, if you ask a, a person like me, and especially uh, Kevin Scott, who's the CTO of Microsoft and I hired for LinkedIn, he would rather be programming in Python right now than doing anything. <laughs> so once you're an engineer, you're an engineer. And you have yeah. to give up something to be a manager or a leader. So don't forget that when you're making that transition.
1: So uh, as you got into management, I'm sure at some point you would also miss writing code. But Ward what- did. What aspects kind of got you going to continue on the management route?
0: Well, there were there were the let's get back to the code part. I still mm-hmm. coded because so for example, when I when we did the transition to sixty four bits, I wrote all the test cases. When we did the um, the when I was the manager of the group that man, that moved to Purify to get Purify to work, I wrote the Purify torture test. Everything you could do wrong in C programming, <laughs> and it was so good that the pure software people made me an honorary member of their engineering team. Now I was the manager at the time, but I was writing the test code. Um, Even when I was at LinkedIn, we had hack day and I wrote a, a hack that basically scraped all the members of LinkedIn. At the time there were 140 million and I could tell you their names and their titles and their companies. And I scraped it without having access to LinkedIn directly. And then I handed it as the hack to my security team who worked for me, of course, <laughs> and they were quite embarrassed. And then yes. they wrote a thing called Sentinel, mm-hmm. which fixed this problem. So dummies like me couldn't scrape LinkedIn. So I kept my hand in. Mm. But, but at the end of the day, you have to decide, you know, you're going to trust your team. And I always trusted the team. And now, you know, at this point, even when I left LinkedIn, everybody was smarter than I was, which is great. That's the way it should be.
1: Yeah. Well, so going from the code part, what, what got you going on the management track? Like, what did you like about it?
0: What I liked about it is is the ability to to handle and do many more things. So I could get a lot more work done and accomplish a lot more if I could direct traffic. And at that point, I became like a coach. Um I don't know if your audience knows this, but I'm a big fan of the Los Angeles Lakers. Sorry about that, Warriors fans. <laughs> but I, I, I grew up here and I have season tickets. Well, you you make a championship team not by just having LeBron and AD on the team. You make it by having rebounders and defensive specialists. And I assembled those teams um, at LinkedIn. Uh, when they did the going away for me, there were 22 LinkedIn employees in the room. Out of those 22, five of them were there before I got there. The other 17 I hired personally, including Kevin Scott and Bruno. And I, that, that was my team. And that's what I realized. With that kind of a team, you're going to win championships. You're going to you're going to win. I, I love that.
1: Makes sense. Uh, so I, I'm very eager to jump on some of the some of your time at LinkedIn. But before I do that, uh, you mentioned when you went to uh, AltaVista, like operations is something that you learned kind of on the job, like learning about networks, data centers. Well, first of all, it sounds challenging. And throughout your career, like you, you were still writing code, um, and just staying close to the ground while managing a big organization. What did that learning about learning on the job about like data centers and networks look like? I, if I imagine, it just sounds hard uh, to do all of that.
0: Well, when you when you realize that at the end of the day, it's either hardware or software. And, and what you'll find, and this is where I, I have friends in this business. So my first startup, we wrote software to design integrated circuits and PC boards. So I have some background in hardware engineering. But the people that know about hardware and software combined make for Good, good people. The, the, the old way of doing operations where you had engineers and they would hand her over a fence to, <laughs> to the operations team and the operations team would run it doesn't work in the internet. It doesn't scale. It's not fast enough. It doesn't deal with issues fast enough. And, and uh, so I was actually a good candidate to be somebody to learn about operations. I actually find the best operations personnel are people that were engineers first and then became operations personnel. If you're strictly operations and you don't know how the code works, then you don't know how the internet works.
1: Oh, yeah. A huge plus one to that. Um, Well, So talking about your time at LinkedIn, you mentioned the third time you came out of retirement was uh, when you came to LinkedIn and led engineering and operations. Yes. Uh, uh, Every SRE at LinkedIn has heard this, that the number one priority after talent is site up. And
0: Yay!
1: <laughs> 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 that oh, took yeah. a
0: while to get that right.
1: Yeah. And like every SRE who joins LinkedIn from the get-go, like from the boot camp to every, like if they go to a post-mortem after an outage or if they're speaking with a team for a new design, like site up is a culture that's talked about a lot. And it's something that's attributed to you. uh, And many people at LinkedIn who are still there uh, since your time talk about site up. Yeah, that's that comes from David Henke. Uh, And I was reading about you. And it seemed like that's true for your time at Yahoo as well. And I, I realize we probably can't go into all the details. But I would love to know uh, what what did it take to bring that culture at a company like LinkedIn. Like you mentioned, it took a while to get there. Uh, like, what major changes needed to be happen?
0: I think that you use the right word, culture. So <laughs> let me let me let me tell you what happened. I, I I come from Yahoo, and Yahoo and Google know how to run a, uh, at scale on the internet. Good for them, and that was a good experience. Come to LinkedIn, the fucking site is down every day. Every day. Okay? I They had a word that I never heard of called throttling. You, you know what throttling means? Where I come from, it means you're on your motorcycle and you're pulling back and you're gassing it. Right? That's what throttling means to me. That's not what it means to these guys. It means you're throwing bits on the floor because you can't handle this many requests. Never heard of this term before. Okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This happened every day. And I'm like this is not good. This is a, this is not a good outcome. Why is this happening? And then you start exploring it. So the first thing we did at LinkedIn was we had a daily operational meeting. And the beauty of a daily operational meeting is I get to hear everything that's wrong. And unfortunately, there's many things that are wrong <laughs> at, at this point. But I, but um, unlike Jeff Liener, who who's probably the greatest QA person that LinkedIn ever had, all 30 of the things that he reported that day aren't going to kill me. But these three things are. And let's go over these three things and figure out what we're doing. At that point, you're bringing attention to the problem. Then you're getting people to realize, you know, if we weren't having so many problems, maybe we could spend more time working on things that are of more interest to us so we can get out of some of these problems. The other problem was just the sheer culture of the organization. LinkedIn was a product company. Reid Hoffman's a wonderful guy, and he's a product guy. Jeff Weiner's a wonderful CEO. Product guy, Deep Nishar, a very uh, technical guy, but he's he was the head of product at LinkedIn from Google, and and so you have three of the most powerful guys at LinkedIn, and they're all product guys. Okay, there's an old adage: quality, schedule, features, pick two. Yeah. Okay, engineers typically pick quality and schedule, not always, but typically. Product people typically pick schedule and features. So there's this natural tension. Between quality schedule features pick two. And I of course when I asked Jeff Wiener this question, what do you think he said? I want all three. Uh (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not the deal, Jeff. That's not that's not the the problem we're trying to solve for here. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, LinkedIn didn't treat site up importantly. And now we did. We had to. Because if you can't keep the site running and the service running, who gives a damn about this next feature? Okay. I'm I'm all believer in growing fast and I think that's a lesson I learned from Mr. Hoffman, Reed Hoffman. Go as fast as you can, grow as fast as you can, but the site's got to work. The other thing that was important to me was security. And and you know, when you know 500,000 of your users have the password 123456, that's not a very secure system and and the, you you want to start building that out as well. Now we weren't moving money at LinkedIn, uh, like, uh, you know, like a bank, but we still wanted to, to make it as secure as possible. So I, I wanted site up and security to be on top after our talent. Talent always comes first because without the people, you can't do anything. Then that and then everything else. Now that doesn't mean we spent all our time working on site up and security. What it means is when push came to shove, that took priority and that was a difficult and time consuming Argument with Jeff, and with Deep, and with Reed, and with uh, and the rest of LinkedIn because LinkedIn wasn't used to that, but we figured it out and it was in our best interest. And at the end of the day, it really, really paid off.
1: So, uh, on to a touch on what you said, uh, quality, schedule, and feature spec too. Uh, it, it's a challenge, especially during high growth times. Like if you're spending too much time getting the perfect technological solution but not for the right product you won't survive on the other hand if you build the right product but like you said if the site is not working that doesn't work either so while you want to grow as fast as you can but still want to make keep the site up how have you seen successful teams manage this
0: well what you realize is what are the you, you look for the things that are killing you so if the sites if you're constantly fighting the site then you really don't have time to add new features, <laughs> right? You're you're just not going to do that. The other thing that was killing LinkedIn was the release process. So the, again, before your guys' times, but we used to release every two weeks. Very badly, it was a huge Java monolith. Remember, I'm the guy that ported Java from Sun to to, to Silicon Graphics when it first came out. What a piece mm-hmm. of shit! Uh, and and it it was the memory management model was horrific, and this. Right. It's much better now. Mm -hmm. Bottom line is that we shipped this big piece of junk every two weeks and we had to fix it forward. Sometimes we were there till the the next morning, sometimes till the next (laughs) afternoon, just trying to get our site to work again. And it was horrific. Right. So we finally went to the uh, product people and to the rest of LinkedIn, the engineers, and said, we want to redo this. We want to re-architect how we deploy And we want to do this in a way that, at the end of the day, we will all be better off. And we had four principles. The project was called Inversion. Everything at LinkedIn is in something. Yeah. It's kind of a nice name. Inversion. So we had four principles. One, trunk development. Everybody checks into the trunk. Mm -hmm. This is the way it should be. This is the way we did it at SGI. By the way, if you broke the build at Silicon Graphics, you're fired. (laughs) Okay? So anyway, don't break the build because we're all checking into trunk. Two, Got to be 24-7 testing against the trunk. We're constantly testing against it because we're all using it as the common base. Three, canary in the coal mine deployment. Instead of deploying to all 100 nodes, I'm deploying to one. If that works, three. If that works, five. If that works, 10. If that works, 30. If that works, 70. If that works, all 100 nodes. Get deployed to. At any moment, if it does not work, undo. You have to be able to undo. And with those four principles and the machinery behind that called inversion, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we changed how code was delivered, deployed, tested, undone, and the pace at which this was all done at LinkedIn. People could release anything at any moment. And if it didn't work, we undo it. This makes the engineers happy. Mm -hmm. They can go as fast as they can. This makes the ops people happy. If it doesn't work, we're undoing it. This makes the product people happy. We're shipping more features than we were before. This makes the salespeople happy. We're making more money. Everybody's happy. And I will tell you, that was a very good thing for us to do.
2: Yeah, it's uh, really interesting to, to see the, how the project inversion uh, came about. And I can imagine that this was the right thing to do. For, for LinkedIn at that time. And it's not easy to, to make that call and say like, Hey, this is what we have to do. And a lot of, I can imagine a lot of engineers coming in and saying, well, I, I thought I was going to work on, you know, like the latest and greatest technology. Why am I being put to, to do the, these other tasks, which I thought would be done already? And I can imagine someone in your position has to be able to keep such a large group of engineers motivated.
0: Okay. So, so how- to, to your, to your point, think about not just the engineers. But think about the product people, right? Their whole, their whole world is new features, new product development, and they were effectively put on hold largely for
2: six right. months. Right. So what I'm curious about is like, how, how were you able to influence them to kind of convince them and keep them motivated to be like, Hey, this is, we have to do this. Um, and this is how it's going to pay out. Like in the short term, I understand this is going to really, really suck, but it, you're going to really enjoy it, you know. After this time of your like- that,
0: that, that's that's right. And 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 what first you go to the leadership, right? You make no mistake. We went first to Deep Nishar, the VP of product, and and the good news is Deep's a pretty good engineer, and and so he understood the mess we were in. Then we went to the Jeff Weiner, and he has And the nice thing about Weiner is he spoke every two weeks in front of the whole crew, every two weeks. And I always asked him why, and he says because you have to say something 42 times before anybody will remember it that's one and two he said we got a lot of new people they've never heard any of this shit we got to do it over and over again well in this case he's going to speak to the whole company about inversion because we need him to we need to get buy-in from the product people from the finance people from the sales people as well as from the engineers and we did
2: nice um so I want to pivot now. So we love discussing stories uh, about uh, production outages on the show and also the lessons learned. I imagine leading up to Project Inversion and probably during it, there were probably many of those. Um, So you've seen other many product outages, not just at LinkedIn, but also um, other companies. Could you share maybe one or two of these uh, war stories from your experience?
0: Yeah, some of these actually bring back very bad memories for me. So I just so if I if I start crying at some point, you'll understand. So probably the greatest outage in that I, in the history of Yahoo that that I was um on board with uh was what what I call the 10G massacre. So 10G is Oracle. Uh Oracle 10G and at the time, again, we had an, a legacy system that was failing, that was responsible for half of Yahoo's money. And the 10G massacre went from Spark to... We, we were going to change uh, all of our databases. And we're going to go from Spark to Intel, single computer to rack, 32 bits to 64 bits, Solaris OS to Linux OS, Big Endian to Little Endian in the in the byte representation, EMC to NetApp Storage, And finally, Oracle 9i to Oracle 10g. This was our migration path.
2: Not in all one step, though, right?
0: Remember, I had been at at, uh, Yahoo for one month just trying to keep the site going. And this had all been tested. I was assured by everyone this was all tested. And we had certifications and all this stuff. And like anything else, when you make that many changes all at once, it's probably not going to work. So I called it, at the end of the day, the 10G massacre. We loaded it up on a weekend, which was typically our non-traffic time. And by the morning, when Asia started coming online on Monday morning, things turned to shit in a hurry, and, and it was bad. And effectively, what we learned was um, this, this version of Oracle on Linux in this environment was beta at best, and it was crashing constantly. I now know what an ORA 600 is. Never knew that before, but you gotta know that, uh, because that's, that's basically, you're screwed, and, and you don't know why. But, but I'm gonna preserve the data, if I can. That's an Oracle fatal error. Um, anyway, took us two months to get out of this nightmare. Two months. During this time, I would get up, at 7 in the morning, walk to work, and I would leave every morning at 2. So I got five hours of sleep, max, and I was living in Pasadena at the time, because that's where Overture was. And at 2 a.m. in the morning in Pasadena, there's only two groups of people that are out there. And uh, they would ask me, can I have a cigarette? Because I used to smoke at the time. Sure. And then they would ask me, why are you out here so late? I said, "Well, it's hard to explain, but I'm responsible for half of the money at a company and we've just shot ourselves in the foot, if not the head." And they then they started asking me, you know, personal questions like, "What's my name?" because they would see me every night. After about 3 weeks, they said, "David, how's it going today? Any better?" And I said, "Well, eh, you know, we we stayed up for most of the day and so forth." After 5 weeks, they said, we have a good feeling about this, David. At this point, I'm, I'm buying them beer and, and, and cigarettes and shit. And remember, I see the same crew every night at 2 a.m. After two months, we sorted all this out with a lot of help from Oracle and, and experts from a lot of places, including a lot of people flown down from uh, headquarters in Sunnyvale for Yahoo. And at the end of it, I went to a liquor store, bought five cartons of cigarettes and as many bags of booze as I could carry. And I took it out there at 2 a.m. to my friends. I said I will never see you again. I hope, and I never did. That's the 10G massacre.
2: Yeah, that sounds fairly horrifying, and I'm glad that you guys were able to get out that at some point. Uh, so, you wrote a series of blog posts uh, related, probably quite to this, um, on the LinkedIn uh, blog titled "Every Day is Monday in Operations." Um, As I was reading through one of those posts, you were talking something about the Panama Project, where you wrote one of the axioms um, that go like, go to work every day willing to be fired. Uh, can you elaborate more on this or share any related really stories? Uh, to convey well, that I, idea?
0: I can. Uh, so Panama uh, is, uh, it, as you know, the Panama Canal is probably one of the greatest construction efforts in the 20th century. Um It's an amazing story. I recommend to all your listeners to read it. It's a like the 1,000-page book in one of my bibliographies on this topic. But we called our project to rebuild sponsored search for Overture and Yahoo Panama. And it was very similar in in terms of many things. One, in the Panama Canal, they had to keep the workforce alive because of yellow fever and uh, because of malaria, and they didn't know the cause of it. In our case, we just had to build a team. When I got to Yahoo, there were 27 people working on... Uh, uh, Panama. When I ended up, there were 500 people working directly on Panama. The second problem was how to engineer the solution. And we had to create brand new engineering uh, and solutions to to make this work and infrastructure as well, just like they did on the Panama Canal. Uh, for those of you who don't know it, the Suez Canal connected two seas, but the Panama Canal connects two oceans. And they literally had to build a lake at the top of Panama get the water in there and use that to, to um, float the boats and to lower the boats in the locks. And that's the engineering solution that worked. Um, but the other thing to remember is, is a long-term project in the Panama Canal was a long-term project. The French had started it. They dug up one-third of it and quit. And it almost bankrupted France. Um, and then the Americans took over because of military um, reasons. And Teddy Roosevelt was smart enough to know that we needed this, nothing else for our military. And, uh, but you can't give up. So (laughs) there's a, there's a a famous part where they're cutting what's called the Calabra Cut in the Panama Canal. And it's a very, um, mountainous area. And once again, because it's a tropical rainforest, it fills in with mud and water. And the engineer goes to the chief engineer. He says, what do I do now? We just filled up the trench, the Calabra Cut. By the way, Calabra means snake in Spanish. We filled it up again. What are you going to do? And the chief engineer says, what do you think you're going to do? Dig. Well, that's what we had to do on the Panama project. It took us one and a half years to do this. Now, getting back to go to work every day willing to be fired. Right near the end of the Panama project, the boss shows up. The CTO of Yahoo. She remained nameless at this time. But he's my boss. And I got all my lieutenants in there. And I had written this 25-page spec for what it meant for acceptance criteria for Panama, right? And he says, we got to ship now. I said, but we're not, we haven't checked off everything on the 25-page spec. So he starts taking things off my list. And I start getting angry. And this is not, not good. And I will say, I didn't behave well. I took my badge and I threw it at the big boss and I walked out of the room and I quit because he was trying to undo my list in front of my staff. At the end of it, he came and we talked and we, ap- we both apologized to my staff uh, because neither of us handled that one very well. Bottom line, we didn't um, relax the criteria for releasing it, and we did a hell of a job. And I'm still proud of that project and I'm very proud of the
2: people that worked on it. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Um, yeah, you mentioned like you, you work with many engineers even at that time. And I imagine a, a big part of your role has been to, to grow them as well and to actually see key qualities um, that, that you're like, this, this is what I want to see in a really good engineer. Um, what kind of key qualities have you kind of discovered from a variety of engineers that you feel like they're going to go places and do great things in the future?
0: Uh, well, again, obviously, you've got to have the smarts, but that's not enough. Necessary, not sufficient. So, believe it or not, culture once again comes into play, right? You could be the smartest guy on the planet, or a gal, and if you can't get along or figure out how to get along with this team, you're off the team. You also have a certain, um, some engineers have a certain knack for exploring or thinking about what could be, and you're always looking to them because those are the ones that are going to take it to the next level, and and that's another trait that I look for. By the way, I interviewed almost every engineer we hired in the old days. Um, I spent thirty five percent of my time in LinkedIn hiring. Imagine that thirty. I remember I was there all day, all night. But still, thirty five percent of my time hiring people. And I would I would talk to uh, junior interns as well as senior leaders. Didn't matter to me because because everybody that joins this company that is the number one priority for us hiring the best and the brightest, but also the cultural fit, that does matter.
1: Uh, since since you talked about your boss a little bit in the previous conversation, in what Austin was talking about during the Panama project, uh, I was looking at a LinkedIn profile, and Kevin Scott, uh, CTO of Microsoft, actually has a recommendation for you. And one thing that he says is that you are the best boss he's ever had.
0: Yeah, that that actually pisses off all his other bosses, by <laughs> the way. That's okay. I'll take it. I have, I have only one other recommendation that I post, by the way. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a guy named Chi Lu.
1: Yeah, and I, I have a question on that one, too. Go ahead. <laughs> okay,
0: okay, go ahead. I just want to make sure we, we mention him because yes. everybody's got a hero in this business, mm-hmm. and my hero is Chi Lu.
1: Okay, uh, wh- wh- why don't you tell us why?
0: When I got to Yahoo, Yahoo was, was a, what I call the loose confederation of warring tribes. He had a lot of really smart people working on a lot of very different things, not necessarily together. Chi just wanted to do search and search monetization. And he was really good at it. And he attracted people to do it. So his team was was very loyal to him. And I eventually worked for him at at the end of the day uh, in search and search monetization. He's the smartest, most humble, hardest working person I've ever met in my life. Period. He literally, you can call him up Every hour of the day, and I tried this, I even had a cron job to do this, because I was so lazy to stay up, just to see when he would respond. All but four hours of the day, he responded. Anyway, that's G.
1: So... Uh, I, I'll get back to my question about Kevin Scott's recommendation about you being the best boss. Uh, but since you mentioned hard work, also on these recommendations, like both from Kevin Scott and Chi Lu, uh, I actually want to read it out just the two couple lines from both of their uh, recommendations. So this is from Kevin Scott's that I knew within a day of working with him that David's passion and commitment to his work and to his employees were almost superhuman. And Chilu says something on the similar lines where ferocious intensity is another hallmark of Henki. I still remember the days where Henki can fight off a major sight outage with his enormous willpower. So you mentioned Chilu was one of the hardest working folks or the hardest working guy you worked with. My question for you is these two people that you respect a lot are saying that your abilities with the intensity you came in with and the passion you have are amazing. So how did you develop this passion and intensity that you brought to work every day?
0: Uh, well, it's, uh, that's a good question. By the way, I'm not like G. Lu and Kevin Scott. They're both introverts. Um, they're, they're both a lot smarter than I'll ever be. Um, but I, I, bel- I don't like it when shit doesn't work. Uh, it really bugs me. Uh, and I don't like to fail. You know, there's, there's, I always say this to people, two kinds of people. Um, do you love winning or do you hate losing? Ask yourself that question sometime. I hate losing more than I love winning. Doesn't mean I don't love to win. I just hate losing. And I hate it when things don't work. And, you know, the nice thing about LinkedIn is there was no end to it there. And Yahoo and, and Overture, no end to it there either. So let's go fix that. And I was often brought in to fix things like that. And, uh, and I know what to do. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, willpower to overcome it, that's not me. That's the team. What I had to do was get the team in place and make sure everybody knew what they were going to do. And once you get enough people marching uh, in the right direction, you'll solve any problem.
1: Well well said. Uh, And coming back to my question about... uh, kevin scott's recommendation for you being the best boss I, I know i've repeated that now three times i don't know how many people I can't that repeat
0: <laughs> all the reasons he might have said that no, uh, uh, but uh, you you can interview kevin someday and maybe ask him that question
1: oh yeah we, we would love to have kevin on the show as well uh
0: he's, he's quite a character uh just get him going. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that
1: okay uh so my question actually is what do you think makes for a good boss
0: Uh, A good boss is, uh, first of all, somebody that listens to you. Listening is a very underrated skill. Um, uh, You you want somebody that actually hears what you're saying, right, but also can speak it back to you. So this gets back to one of my definitions of communication. Email is not communication. Texting is not communication. IRC chat is not communication. Communication is when you and I are talking to each other, I say something to you, you can say what I said back to me, and I have to agree that you got it right. That's communication. I had to learn that the hard way in marriage counseling, uh, and that didn't work. But anyway, bottom line is, communication is really hard. And believe it or not, I would use this trick with some of my teams. Okay, person A, you need to talk to person A. Say what he said, and make sure he agrees that you've got it right. You would be amazed how hard this is, um, and that's something we need to focus on. The other thing that I used to do as as the boss was I wanted to know what they what my employees wanted to do. Look what, it, what is it you want to be when you grow up? What is it what you want to do next? What is it you want to work on? so I, I don't I don't wait every six months or one year to have a a talk like that with them. I wait it maybe at the max a week and and we'll we'll hash it out. And by the way, there's usually three things. And But no one wants to hear more than three things that, uh, that you want to work on, trust me. <laughs> Poor thing, and their their eyes are waving over their head, and they could give a shit. So pick three things, and instead of saying you suck at this, say, what if you did this instead? Maybe we can talk about that. What if this – for the three things that we're trying to work on? Because there's always something
2: to work on, and that's true for all of us.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true.
2: Yeah. Um, so you've been leading – You've been in a lot of leadership roles um, at this point and worked with many, many leaders as well. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a ton of parallels with, you know, being a good boss. But I imagine there's other independent contributors or uh, individual con- contributors that, you know, also have like the leader attribute, um, just not in like more managerial position. Um, so what to you? Uh, makes a great leader beyond like, I know. Well, you're let's, well
0: let's talk about individual contributors for a second. I'm going to turn your question a little bit because it's sure. a good, it's a good LinkedIn story as well. So when I got to LinkedIn on day two, uh, I, w- I asked uh, the VP of operations at the time, show me the DR site. Tell me about it. How long will it take me to cut over if I lose this data center? A? And he says, I don't think you understand. And I said, I don't, th- I don't think you understand. It's a simple <laughs> question. Is it going to take four hours, eight hours? 12 hours a day? And he says, I don't think you understand. I said, I don't think you understand. <laughs> he said, well, we have 90% of the computing we need in the second data center, the DR site. I said, that's fine. We can buy the other 10%. I said, what else? He says, well, we don't have any software on those computers of our software. We don't have any data replicated on those computers. And we don't have any configuration parameters set up. Basically, they're just machines cooking the machine room. <laughs> I said, so basically what you're telling me is we don't have a DR site. Is that what you're telling me? And he goes, that's right. I, so, by the way, that's not good. I had to go right to the CEO and right to the board of directors and say, if we lose this data center, we are out of business. Everyone, nod your head. Everyone understands this, right? Okay. So... Fast forward, we built a DR site. Thanks a lot to Neil Pinto and a whole bunch of people. And we built it from scratch. And it worked. We know it worked because we cut over to it in about eight hours. Pain in the ass, but we cut over to it. Then we wanted to build Multicolo. Now, Multicolo is a lot harder because you got to flip traffic, but the hardest part for LinkedIn was all the data sources had to be replicated so that they were... Um, Consistent. And that was a really hard problem. So I took the best engineer I could think of at LinkedIn that we hired from Yahoo, a guy named Swee Lim, individual contributor, not a manager, not a director, blah, 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 but a real smart engineer. And I said, Swee, we've got to make multicolor work. Just like we used to do at Yahoo, just like they do at Google. Flip traffic, who gives a shit if we lose a data center, right? Everybody in the company at that point worked for Sui Lim, the individual contributor. He became the leader. Jeff Wiener got in front of the entire company. If this gentleman comes into your office and asks for something, do what he says. And we built Multicolo in one year, roughly. Now, it runs in many, many data centers. And I remember the last time I was in the knock at LinkedIn, it was green, 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 red. Red was one data center down; the other three are data data centers up. And Mr. Hinke, isn't this a beautiful thing? We don't give a shit; it works perfectly. And I said that is a beautiful thing. But it took an individual contributor, to your point, to lead all of LinkedIn on a cross-functional project, which was a real pain in the ass, but we did it.
2: And I imagine even like sweet, like you said. Uh, extremely smart, um, and I'm assuming that like, another big part was that he was able to bring other people along, which I, I think is something that a lot of engineers, you know, over time slowly start to develop, um, which made him so uh, useful in that particular position. That,
0: that's right. People
2: want to they they want to
0: be part of something. They want to follow people that are that are very good. They want to learn from people that are very good. Shit, I learned a tremendous amount from SWE. Um how does this work? How does that work? What's the biggest problem we are faced with to get this replication problem to work? And uh and he by the way, he I think he just left LinkedIn and he's over at Databricks now. Good for them. Uh good, very good guy. And uh, but it just shows you that you don't have to be a manager or director or VP. You can lead as an individual contributor, and as long as you you had you need the backing of the of the other leadership. But the nice thing is. So we had the backing of the CEO of the company. Again, Jeff Wiener would stand up every two weeks. This is Swee Lim. If he walks into your office, do what he says.
1: Uh, I have a follow-up on that. Uh, It's amazing that Jeff and the entire company supported Swee on this project of Multicolo. And I mean, today... Oh, we, we see that, like LinkedIn runs out of multiple data centers, we do traffic shifts, and it's just amazing. That's one of the first things when I came to LinkedIn that uh, I was extremely impressed is, oh, we just click a button and it all happens. It's like magic. Uh, but what does it take for an IC to build that trust, that level of trust with the leadership? Like, it, it's not easy.
0: Well, part of it is is I have to talk to, once again, the CEO and the product people and the salespeople. So I, you know, the nice thing about talking with Mr. Wiener is he likes philosophy. So you, we talk about things like existential issues. Existential is basically death or life, right? So, so he gets the fact that if we really can't make this work, we're just going to be in, in a bad spot. And, and, and the nice thing is we also came from a company that understood how to do this. So people know it can be done. Google, it's not a problem. They do it all the time. Facebook, they do it all the time. But LinkedIn did not, and, and Yahoo knew how to do it. So it's important to say it can be done. Once it's done, everyone's going to breathe easier. Believe it or not, of the of my four years there, until we had Multicolo, I did not breathe easy.
1: Uh, I would ask for a lot of startups who are on this accelerated path of growth, Uh probably are still working towards developing that site up culture which they want but it's not there yet what advice uh, would you have for them either teams or early stage companies
0: well I, one thing is uh, you you're in a better spot now right so when i started at linkedin aws was just coming out right with amazon google didn't have the cloud uh, microsoft didn't really have azure uh, but AWS was starting, and we knew some of the first users of it because they were ex-Yahoo guys that went over to Netflix. And Netflix was going to go all in with this. And believe it or not, at that time, this was years and years ago, uh, it wasn't reliable. It wasn't elastic. It wasn't cost-effective. There was the system administration school- tools sucked. The security system sucked. And it was like, much as we wanted to use it, we wouldn't use it for all of those reasons. Now but it's great, and you can go to AWS, you can go to Google Cloud, you can go to Azure, and you can be pretty sure that you don't have to deal with data centers and networks and uh, the computing. That doesn't mean your software doesn't have to be (laughs) resilient, and your monitoring systems don't have to be excellent, and your scaling systems don't have to be knowledgeable. And so you have to build that in, at least architect for that, up front. That's my, that's one of my suggestions. I know you want to go as fast as you can. And I, and I'm a big believer in Mr. Hoffman's, um, blitz scaling. Mm. Uh, that's something I had to learn the hard way. The faster, the better. And, but that's why you invest in things that help you go faster, help you scale. Because you, you, you don't want to be in a position of what I call the going out of business business. Let's say your success is so good. But you can't keep up with the demand because you can't scale it fast enough. Even if by throwing computing at it, you can't scale it fast enough. Then you're in a bad spot. And if you're moving money, that's what I like to talk about, you know, like the encryption guys and the Bitcoin guys versus versus and the banks versus LinkedIn. LinkedIn had to run at three nines. We did not at first, but, but my goal was three nines. Ninety nine point nine uptime. The, the money guys can't do that. They have to run at 4.9s or better and because they're moving people's money. And if they screw it up, they're out of business. And, and I think it's important to grasp that as you're running as fast as you can because it seems like they're at odds with each other. They don't have to be. You just have to engineer and architect your solutions to scale. Always think 10x.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, So we're starting to wrap up and I have a few more questions for you. Uh, I want to make sure uh, we respect your time. But before I go on to these questions, are there any other war stories you would like to share with our listeners?
0: I have many. maybe if if uh, people d- uh, like them, I, I, I literally could go on forever. And so I will not do that. I will go to your questions.
1: Okay. Uh, well we will, we'll save that for another time. Uh, we or at least I heard that uh, you read a lot and you also like gifting books to to your staff, to the people who, who work with you. What are some of the books that you've gifted the most?
0: So I, I, I not only gift books, but I, <laughs> it's required reading. <laughs> okay. So if you work for me mm-hmm. directly, uh, you have to read these books. And uh, actually, I, I'll just lay some. I was going to look for a list, but I can't find it. Um, so, so here's some of the books that I, I really recommend. But I have a bibliography, and, and your readers can go find it on the Internet. It's a, a leadership talk that I, I've given maybe 30 times uh, it was recorded by UC Santa Barbara, and I managed not to use the F word in that thing because it was my alma mater. Um, but at the end of this deck that, that this leadership speech is, uh, is done, it has a bibliography of all these books.
1: Okay, we'll end that on and, the show notes for sure.
0: And, and definitely uh, uh, allow your readers just to look at the bibliography because they're good reads. Um, but I have many, many good reads. Some of them go way back, uh, you know, like the Mythical Man Month is um, a software book. Six Hats is kind of a fun read. But some of the more important books are, one of them is a philosophical book, but written by the Toltecs, who predated the Aztecs. And uh, it's called The Four Agreements. And it's very important to me. The four agreements are, do your best, which you guys all do, um, which is great. Be impeccable with your word. That's number two. Impeccable is Latin without sin. Don't assume anything. Well, that's Ops 101, right? <laughs> and yeah. the hardest one, don't take anything personally. I love this one because that may be the hardest one for most people to appreciate, but I'll give you an example. David Philo, the founder of Yahoo, smart guy, engineer, and I worked for him at one point when the when the, the CTO left and we were looking for a new CTO, and he called me an idiot about 500 times while I worked for him, and I said, David, uh, I have the largest group in the company and I have the largest budget because I run the data centers and the computing and the networks. And you've given me all this responsibility, and I'm an idiot. What does that make you? Uh, and I'm thinking, he must have just kicked his dog that day or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> bottom line is, don't take it personally. I don't think he really thought I was an idiot. Uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but I don't really <laughs> worry about it. So that's a very good book to, for me, because you can use it in your life as well as in, in work. Go to the bibliography, because I think it, you know, it talks about things like how they built a Panama Canal it's a hell of a read. Uh, you want to see how something's done? A big project's done? Because not everything is a quick and, and dirty project anymore. Some, some things are much harder to build than others. The graph uh, at LinkedIn, the network, that t- we did it three times when I was there. That's a hell of a thing. And it's a hell of a thing to get right. And it may be the, the most interesting data structure we have.
1: Yeah. And so, we just released a new database to store that graph.
0: You did well. I didn't yeah. know that. See, so you're on iteration number n, where n is greater than uh, than I remember. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that recommendation, and David, we could go on and on with you, uh, and we could ask you a lot more questions, uh, but probably we'll save that for another time. Uh, it's been such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh,
0: any any time. And if you work at LinkedIn, you're you're probably part of the best SRE group in the universe at least in our universe and the reason i know that is uh ex-googler kevin scott now cto of microsoft knows how good google is at this and he said bruno your team's better so there you go
1: (laughs) we'll 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 take that uh thank you so much again we really appreciate it take care hey thank you so much for listening to the show you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.